Welcome to Building the Future. I'm your host, Kevin Horick. You can check out new episodes of the show every Tuesday and Thursday at 2 p.m. If you missed an episode or want to get more information about the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. I'm excited to be attending and recording shows at Rainmaker 2016. You can join keynote speaker Gary Vanderchuk along with modern revenue leaders at the only conference dedicated to the sales development industry, March 7th and 9th in Atlanta. Get tickets now to receive cutting-edge sales content from thought leaders, learn best practices during breakout sessions, and come network with the world's top sales influencers. If you use the promo code BTFS and the number 30, you'll get 30% off. More information is on the show website at buildingthefutureshow.com. I'm also going to be at the Business Rocks Tech, Music, and Investment Summit recording shows live in Manchester, England, April 21st and 22nd, where Steve Wozniak is headlining. More information about the summit is on the show website at buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Tim Sanders, New York Times bestselling author and keynote speaker. Tim, welcome to the show. Hey, Great to be with you, Kevin. Yeah, I'm excited to have have you on the show. I've been uh, actually reading your deal storming book, and I've been finding it really, really interesting. And and that's kind of what triggered me to wanting you have on the show. Um, you know, and this is going to air the day it comes out, so I'm excited to kind of you know have a pre copy that I got to you know read before the rest of the world. I've always liked that uh, having that exclusive feel, you know. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. The advanced reader copy for the media. Love it. Love it. So kind of maybe before we talk about your book and your other kind of ventures, maybe let's kind of cover uh, where you grew up. So I was born in Lubbock, Texas. I was raised in eastern New Mexico. Um, I was raised by my grandmother. I was an entrepreneur from the age of 11. That's when wow. I opened my first fireworks stand oh, yeah. right on the edge of town on our farm, and I sold fireworks over the summer. I um, I worked at a radio station in high school selling ads. Okay. Um, yeah. And then um, I went on to a career selling television advertising. And then in 1997, when I was living in Dallas, Texas, I took a job at a startup led by a man named Mark Cuban. Some people have probably heard of went him. On. You've heard of him from Shark Tank, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And yeah. Um, the, the startup ended up uh, going on to become Broadcast.com. We had the biggest opening day IPO in history. And in 2000, um, the company was bought by Yahoo. Yep. And Mark immediately went on his own way and bought the Dallas Mavericks. Sure. I I headed west. I was transferred to headquarters in the Silicon Valley, and I went to work at Yahoo. And by 2002, um, after doing a lot of these deal storms that you read about in the book, I was promoted to chief solutions officer. And, Kevin, that was about the time I published my first book sure. titled Love, Love is the Killer App, How to Win Business and Influence Friends. Um, anyway, I left Yahoo in 2005 to become a full-time consultant, speaker at conventions, and I went on to write uh, four more books, including the one you're reading right now, Deal Storming. Sure. No, that's awesome. So I'm kind of curious to know a, a little bit more about kind of what you kind of consult on um, and kind of what you kind of talk about when, you, when you're a keynote speaker. I would say that there's three things that I really push. Okay. Number one, number one, it's all about relationships. 
And you've got to develop strong relationships inside your company before you develop them out in the field. So no matter what kind of company you have, the ability to create strong connections between people inside and outside your company, that's your sustainable competitive advantage. I talk about this a lot, especially to my clients. The, okay. the second thing that I talk a lot about a lot is that collaboration will solve your greatest problems. Okay. And this is something that I learned, you know, when I was working at Cuban's company. And it's simple. No one wins an award for going down alone. When you get stuck, build the team around the challenge, bring in everyone from other departments and win. And this is something that, you know, is core to this new book, Deal Storming. And frankly, Kevin, it's really hard for people to do this because sales doesn't want to always reach out across other departments and bring them into the process. But in my experience, the more you go wide, the faster you win. Sure. No, I and, oh, no, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. And the last thing I'm just going to say is that I really believe in the power of culture. So in a company or any kind of organization, culture is how we do things here. And leaders lead it one example at a time. And that's why today, if you're stuck in some kind of challenge, the smartest thing you can do is put together a collaborative team and lead them to victory because it changes everything in the way you think about teamwork. No, I 100% I agree with you. It's just I've worked at kind of marketing companies and, and whatnot in the past as well. And you know, some of the best ideas that when we were kind of brainstorming a new campaign or, or whatnot, sometimes came from like the developer or something else or somebody else, you know, that you wouldn't traditionally include in those meetings. And I, I think you're totally um, right when you say that, you know, it makes a lot of sense to bring in people from from different departments. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's so many examples that prove this is true. I mean, Thomas Edison, when you think about the light bulb, you know how it screws in? Sure, yeah. Okay? So an assistant whose job was janitorial service noticed one of Edison's co-workers build in, bends over to unscrew a bucket, and that's where he had the idea, which he brought up in a meeting really? about how to make a light bulb that would easily fit into the light socket. There are so many stories from history that prove the best ideas usually come from the edges of an organization. And here's why. When you're in the fishbowl, you don't even know there's such a thing as water. Totally. So when you're in sales, you're just thinking about the product and the prospect and getting the deal signed. So that's why deal storming changes the game because if everyone else around your company that can see things you can't see and they're the ones that help you win. Sure. No, that makes a lot of sense. So I'm kind of curious, what was the kind of last straw that made you decide, you know, I need to write another book and, you know, on kind of deal storming? I kept talking to consulting clients and, and they kept saying the same thing over and over again. It's getting so complicated to make a quality deal happen. They were just talking over the years about how we have three decision makers on every sale. Now we have five decision makers on every sale. Now we have 10 decision makers on every sale. And then what was happening also is that what everyone started to sell was so amplified and so technical, it made it even harder to break through the complexity. And that's when I realized this deal forming process that I built way back in 2000 and then helped clients use for 15 years, it's perfect for anyone, whether you're a startup entrepreneur or whether you're a B2B salesperson, to really motor through the times. And so I decided this was the time to reveal the process, share all my stories, and help people win through collaboration and teamwork. 
Sure. No, that makes a lot of sense. And and we're even having that. We're, we're kind of in the process of that right now. And, um, you know, we're working on partnering with a, a big client out of the States. And you're right. There's like so many different departments that, you know, you kind of need to like get in line with. And especially when, you know, if if especially in a partnership kind of thing where you need kind of like upper management to decide, yeah, like we want to do this. And then you have to talk to the sales guys and then you have to help them even um, put together marketing materials. And you're right that kind of closing the deal with one person now is is basically gone. That's right. And every closing strategy you've ever heard of assumed you were just closing one person. But what's really going on, Kevin, is you're recruiting a couple of inside champions. Corporate executive board calls them their mobilizers, right? They're people on the other side of, you know, the the deal that actually go track down the eight people that have to be okay and sign off on it, and they act as your salesperson. And this is where creativity becomes important because you got to arm them with the perfect illustration, the perfect formula, the perfect metaphor they're going to use. And that's where deal storming is going to really help you figure this out. So I talk a lot about this idea that it's about recruiting those partners at the prospect through creativity, which is what you and your teams can figure out. Sure. So I'm kind of curious, though. Like, So like, it, take for me, me as an example, and I'm working at a company, and, you know, I, I read the book. How do I kind of go to, you know, management or, or whatnot and kind of say, you know, I think this would really help the sales team or whoever in the company kind of, you know, get us new clients and, and new projects, kind of what what would you kind of start with or, or kind of tell people or, or kind of maybe just give even like a general overview of what the whole idea and kind of deal storming is about? Got it. Deal storming is when you create a team against a specific sales challenge that includes people that have a stake in the outcome okay. or some kind of expertise about the problem you're dealing with. And the team should be built according to the size of the opportunity. So let's just say it's a ten, twenty thousand dollar sales challenge that you're facing right now. That team may only be a trio or a quartet. It may involve you, your manager, someone from finance, someone from engineering. I'm just making this up as an example. Sure. But if it's a big opportunity, like a game changer, hundreds of thousands, maybe even a million dollars, you might build a team that's got eight people, six from your company and two from the prospect. Here's how you do it. Oh, interesting. The way okay. you start this, yeah, the way you start this deal storming process at your company is find a specific deal that's stuck, okay. or find a really big account that's in trouble, okay. and tell your manager we will increase our chances of solving it by three hundred percent. Because that's what my research says. If we form a big team around it. And so the idea then is when you you talk to your manager and you say, okay, I think that team is going to involve me and you, and then here's who has a stake in the outcome. So that might be um, you have a person who has to deliver the services later. Let's get them. You've got the one person at the prospect who stands to gain the most if the deal happens. Let's get them. There's somebody who's an expert on the thing we're challenged with right now, which is pricing. They work in the finance department. Let's get them. And then there's a bunch of engineers that may have to do a lot of work down the road if this deal goes custom. Let's bring them in now. When you talk to your manager, you're not trying to change the way your company sells things. You're just solving a specific sales challenge. So when you bring the team together, if you follow my process, prepare, meet, execute, and repeat, you're going to win. 
70% of the time, we've closed the multi-million dollar deals using this process. And when you win, your sales leadership will go, wow, that's what we're going to do moving forward. When we get stuck, if it's big enough to build a team around it, that's what we're going to do every time. And that's what I mean when I say this is how you change the culture of your organization, one case study at a time. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. And I know just kind of as I was reading through the book, you kind of reference like playing video games and, you know, kind of, and and, and I think that, that kind of really struck a chord with me because, well, obviously I grew up playing video games and I don't, Mm -hmm. I don't really play too much anymore just because I don't really have time for that. But I thought that was kind of interesting. So do you maybe want to kind of talk about kind of that, like comparing selling to playing a video game? Yeah, think about this. The sales process and its complexity is just like how video gaming has gone for the last 30 years. When I started playing video games around the time I was selling radio spots in Clovis, New Mexico, it was like Pong, the most popular game at the time. For those of you listening, you might not remember Pong, but it's like tennis. It was like the simplest game in the world. It was hand-eye coordination. You know, just like filling the funnel as a salesperson and picking up the check. And then as time went by, I started to sell more complicated stuff. And guess what? Video games started to get more complicated, right? Sure. They had role-playing games in the 80s like Ultima. And then the late, mid to late 80s games like Wolfenstein and, and Doom where you went through multiple levels of challenge. And today, you've got games like Halo. It's impossible almost to get to the top level by yourself. That's exactly how B2B sales or startup sales, entrepreneurs, works today. It's just as complicated, and it's absolutely become a multiplayer game. Sure. No, that makes a lot of sense, and it's really kind of interesting, especially like some of the more complicated games can – sometimes there's never an end, really, right? Like if you you sign a big deal with a big, um, you know – partner or client you could be in there for years or even like a decade depending on kind of the project right and so you kind of keep you kind of need to keep nurturing and kind of almost not necessarily like reselling them but kind of keeping like fresh ideas and you know sometimes those come from people actually working on the project you know and, and I know as especially if you're doing like web stuff and android and ios you know, new versions are coming out all the time, right? And you kind of yeah. need to, you know, add new features that support the new versions and whatnot. So it can kind of yeah. get complicated as as almost like the longer the process is and the longer you're kind of either a client or a customer, you know, you kind of need to keep at it. That's right. And, and, and to build on your idea, the earlier you bring in people from around the company and your partner to team up with you, like when you bring them in early when it's just a sales challenge, sure. later on when it's a delivery challenge, when it's an upgrade challenge, when it's a renewal challenge, when it's a service breakdown challenge for reasons beyond your control, that team has been playing together for a long time. They're highly engaged and you'll find they solve problems faster. And this is a really important point I want to make. Sure. Whether you're a startup or whether you're a media company, whatever you do, rapid problem solving is your only sustainable competitive advantage. Yeah, okay? that's super important. It's about 
be the solution is the key. Don't think of the breakthrough product or service that's going to save the day. There is no big idea that saves the day in the business world. It's about how fast you can move forward. And that's why I totally believe we got to build these teams to keep leveling up every single day on these accounts. No, I, I 100% agree with you. And like I've like I'm working on some startup ideas right now and you know I've worked at startups in the past and and you're right like it's constant problem solving and and that's why I like the agile kind of methodologies kind of taken off yeah. so much in in the whole space because sometimes like you, you shouldn't necessarily like chase a potential client's tail all the time which just with like what they request feature wise but sometimes you mm -hmm. need to do that for for weeks or, or maybe months at a time and and so you're kind of always pivoting and you're kind of always solving these problems and so i i, I totally get it I, it was kind of just kind of going through the book it, it was fascinating to me just kind of th the stuff that i've been through in the past and i didn't really realize that i've already kind of been doing some of the stuff that was in your yeah. book just without even really realizing it. And I, I noticed how yeah. valuable it's been just in my own stuff. And that's kind of what got me really interested about kind of having you on the show and talking more about it because it's benefited me personally. Well, that's great. And, and I hope, Kevin, that the one other thing the book does, especially in the world of your startup life, is it will challenge you to pursue bigger deals with more courage. Sure. Here's why I say this. You know, I went to sales stack last year and I heard a lot of startups talking about the sales development rep process and they really focus on this idea that, you know, we try to get in with a free service, we do a demo, we get a small license and then we grow that company over time. Sure. And I get it, especially for, you know, newer salespeople, that's great. You know, use social selling, never get told no, just move them up one step at a time. But the problem is this. If you don't have the courage and the process to pursue the million-dollar deal, somebody else will, and totally. they'll push you out of an account you've been in for a year doing test and scale. I can't tell you how many times I've seen this. As an angel investor, I never put money in a company that is dying a death of a thousand cuts. If they can't show me a half a million dollar or a million-dollar deal in their pipeline that they think they can win, they're going to lose. And so, you know, one of the things this book really needs to do is arm you with what you need to ask the client for the big five-year deal across every one of their divisions. Because I tell you what, if you're in tech, Sprint will, Microsoft will, SAP will. So as startups who are trying to compete and take money out of the niche, you've got to think big too. And this book's going to show you how to pursue that. Because sometimes, even if you're just a small startup, you can use deal storming with other startups you've met with conferences as your collaborative partners, sure. or even vendors or OEMs that you buy from as your collaborative partners. So you don't have to be a big company to do great deal storms. Sure. So I, I'm kind of curious, though. Like I, I work as a creative director at a software company, and, and kind of I'm part partner at a ventures firm. And so mm -hmm. the one thing that I struggle with personally is almost just selling kind of in general, like I, it's always kind of a bit, I, I don't really know what to say or kind of what to do. And I, and there's got to be a lot of people out there that, you know, especially doing a startup that are, are in the same boat as myself, where where it's, it's not that I'm uncomfortable doing it. I, I guess I am uncomfortable doing it. I just because I don't really know what to say or kind of how, how to go about doing it. So do you want to maybe kind of cover how kind of deal storming and your process can kind of almost help me through that struggle? 
Absolutely. So it's it's like speaking in public. I've done 500 keynote speeches at conventions and conferences. Wow. And I talk to people all the time who are like, man, I have a fear of public speaking. How do you get over it? And the answer is have content you can't wait to share. All right. Okay, interesting. So it's like you you can't get excited about some sales script. You know, hi, Mr. Jones, we have an incredible opportunity for you. This is how much it costs and these are the features and benefits and, you know, what's it going to take for us to move to the next level? That's not you. You're not that linear thinker. You're a totally. creative thinker, right? So, so chapter um, eight of the book is okay. titled The Hacker, The Chef, and The Artist. And what I believe is that in a creative process like a deal storm, the, the best way to get everybody excited, regardless of whether you're a natural-born salesperson or not, is to find the right persona that you're going to take on to solve this challenge. Okay, So if you're stuck and you can't get in the front door with the influencers and decision makers, you're going to take on the role of the hacker, right? We see okay. it all the time in social selling, but you could even be more creative. And you can find a brand new approach to connect in a really unexpected sort of way and make a lot of progress creatively. That's what the sales hack is all about. In some situations, you're going to have a very complicated environment where you've got to put together some kind of recipe of products and services and partners and, and maybe even process of delivery that totally works for them, feels custom to them, and helps them uh, get excited about it. That's when you're going to become the chef. Okay. But in many situations, Kevin, what you really need is, instead of a pitch is you need what I call a sales device. And a okay. sales device could be an infographic that oh, you give okay. them that they pass around the company that demonstrates exactly how your product works. So, for example, at Yahoo, this is way back in the day, 2000, when, when a bunch of analysts said banner ads don't work and all of our customers, like the big ones like Nike and whomever, they said, we just want to pay for the click. Sure. Dude, that was going to wreck our business because if we only got paid on the click – that would take 80% out of our billings because we were charging like TV and radio for impressions, okay? Sure. So I had to figure out some way to sell impression-based advertising to a bunch of customers during a recession that only wanted to buy the click. So we came up with a very creative idea in a meeting, and it came from one of our most creative people in design. It was called the iceberg. Okay. So we created a slide, which became a takeaway, which we emailed to customers as a PDF, and the slide was an infographic, and it showed that the click represented all the value that we delivered them, and the click was everything you could see above the water. But below the water, and we dotted it with statistics, was brand awareness, future purchase intent, barriers to competitive entry, and so on, because we were able to document for them the varying stages at which the impression still delivered value. Now, we had been, like, saying this, and trying to give them spreadsheets. But this is when I learned people resist facts and figures, but they lean into examples and analogies, right? Sure. So the iceberg gave us confidence. Even our director of research was boldly get up in front of ad agencies and presenting it. And he would have told you right now he is no salesperson. But give him the right piece of creative content, especially one that's going to sell forward, that guy gets on fire. That's what I'm talking about. And for those of you listening that like hip-hop music, mm -hmm. just listen to any of your favorite songs and count the number of times they use the like device creatively, where they say, this is like that. And you hear startups do it, Kevin, where someone might say, we are the Airbnb for pets. 
Right. We are the Uber for tractors. That's a device they've created, usually through collaboration, that works. And nothing gets you more excited about selling than a selling piece of content that works. Yeah, no, that that's an interesting way to put it, and I think it makes a lot of sense. And I, I, do you kind of get pushback that from companies that you work with that they don't really have the time or the resources or really want to have these kind of meetings to kind of arm the right people with the right sales tools or kind of even be in these kind of deal storming type meetings? Yeah, well, I think there, there's a couple of concerns. You know, they worry about the time because there is a cost of collaboration, but I've developed sure. a formula, okay. including a great, you know, a very clear table that says, okay, if the opportunity on a scale of one to ten is only a seven, then this is all your resource, right? It might just uh, be a okay. trio. Okay. They might only have one or two meetings, but if it's a nine, you're going to build it. So it really kind of depends on the situation. Here's the bigger thing that my clients had to get over, but I got them over it, and that is they don't want to work with the land of no. Mm-hmm. Like finance or legal, sure. they don't want to get trapped, you know, working with the world of slow, like marketing and operations. So they fear letting go of the sales process or having other people involved. And that's where I have to convince them that if they want to triple their outcome, they got to overcome that fear because the land of slow can be your best partners if you bring them in early. The world of slow gets a lot faster when they feel like they have ownership over the process. And when you build these relationships across the company, it changes the quality of what you actually deliver once the deal is signed. And so what I always tell my clients is just pick an example of an opportunity that you've got to win. Follow my process, and you know, you're likely going to win, and then tell that story forward, and everyone's going to realize sales genius is a team sport. No, that makes a lot of sense. And and. It's interesting that you touched on kind of like you'll get a better product at the end because I think if the entire team or at least the people working on the project feel like they had some input before you even kind of won the project, that at least in my experience, everybody seems a lot more passionate to work on that project. And like you said, even go kind of the extra mile if it's needed or, you know, and deliver kind of a better project because they're kind of passionate and they felt like a part of it even before you had the deal. Have you found the same thing? Yeah, exactly. And nothing wastes more time than hitting your head against the wall over and over again, right? So here's another analogy I would use about this time issue. Sure. I would would ask people, I would say, you know, if you've got a problem with somebody in a process situation, there's something broken down in the process at work, Mm -hmm. what's faster, picking up the phone and having a call with them like you and I are doing or sending them an email? And surprisingly, Kevin, most people would say sending them an email. But I've done research on this at Deeper Media, and the answer is it takes five times longer when there's a problem to be solved for you to solve it over email. And the reason why is people don't understand your intention. Everything is too cryptic and short. No one can read between the lines like we can by tone of voice, and it breaks down. We found that when you're trying to solve something over email, you're going to write six notes that go back and forward. You're going to think about it a lot. But you could pick up the phone, and if you get to business in 10 minutes, you can solve the problem. And that's the way collaboration works in the sales challenge. We've got to get outside of that funnel process sometimes, quit lobbing in the extra call, and actually go outside of our silo if we want to do it faster. And that's the surprising truth around this process. Sure. No, that makes Makes a lot of sense. So do you have any kind of tips for people that are kind of looking, they're like, okay, I really want X company as a client and we have this really great solution for them. How you kind of get in touch with 
who you need to get in touch with to at least start and kind of open the conversation to showcase your product or service? So, so what you're asking me is how do you open the door when the door looks shut? Yeah. Okay. So the first thing you, I really, I really like the idea of leveraging things like LinkedIn. So okay. The first thing me you've too. got to do is you've got to get very clear on product prospect fit. In other words, you need to first be very certain that you can prove on the numbers that you either save them money or increase their business growth. If you can't do one of the two and you can't prove it, nothing I tell you is going to help. So you start with there. Everything starts with understanding your value. And you may have to go Columbo inside your company and do a bunch of research and ask why a bunch to figure this out. Okay. Second, what you've got to do is create an influence map. Um, I talk about this in the book. An influence map helps you understand who uses your product at the prospect company. Sure. Who has to manage your product at a prospect company. In other words, who manages change because that's what you're selling. Sure. Your competitor is the status quo. Who benefits from your product or loses from the absence of your product? And mm, once you create that map, now you have your starting point. And you don't always have to zero in on the person who signs on the dotted line in the C-suite. Sometimes you can look on the map on the outer edges where you just look at who's losing and who's winning if they do or don't have your product and begin to contact them via content marketing. Right? So you can go to them and say, I love to do this where I change my privacy um, settings on LinkedIn. So when I look at your profile, you don't see that I looked at your profile. It just says somebody from Las Vegas looked at your profile because that's where I live. That's how it works. Okay. And so I'll go in and I'll look at all these profiles at a company and I'll zero in on the people that I consider the winners and the pain feelers. These are the people that depending on what I'm selling and what the value prop is are going to get the most out of this. And in many situations, dude, they're not even the decision maker. It's sure. three clicks above them. Okay. And I zero in on them. I begin to interact with their content. I begin to share content and target it to them. So maybe I might share something in a message to them. I might share something in a comment. It's going to be very careful to you, organic about this. You may have to interact with some of their content first to establish trust. But it's very easy to develop these fringe relationships. And then as you go in, give them all the information they need to sell you forward and look successful representing you, and you would be shocked if you mentor and challenge them, they open the doors for you, and every one of those entrances, as you move up that decision chain, becomes a warm call, okay? Sure. So think about it. Save money, grow business, be sure of that, create the influence map, and talk first to the people, if it's a big company, that are either feeling pain because of a lack of your product, or have the most to gain, and interact with them over platforms like LinkedIn, not through cold calling your voicemail or even trying to lob off a bunch of emails to them. Sure. No, that makes a lot of sense. It's always kind of been interesting to me to see kind of tactics on, on how to kind of get into kind of like opening those doors. And that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. The the other thing that I found really kind of interesting that you, you kind of you cover in the book is is almost using data to basically get deals. And you had an example kind of early on in the book about um almost like going to a, a potential client and saying, here's roughly how, what you're spending on something. Here's how we can kind of save you money because we kind of already wrote an algorithm that sorted this out for you. Yeah, a lot of times when we sell things, we're focused on how we can get them more clients. Sure. And what we don't think about is, you know, even when you're a small startup, there are some data uh, and there are some insights that you gathered that can help them do a better job 
of optimizing what they spend with your biggest competitors. And that's a real judo trick to get into a market. Um, I wrote about this in the book with um, Yahoo in its early days when we were trying to sell to movie studios like Disney, right? So Disney spent 95% of a movie launch budget on TV ads to run the trailers and Sunday newspaper display ads. And we kept trying to sell them banner ad campaigns, but our audience was small. I mean, they buy a commercial on Friends. That's like a week of Yahoo traffic when you really think about it. Sure. So they weren't that excited, you know, about what we had to offer. And then one of our data miners in the meeting says, hey, look at this. I've been able to create an algorithm that correlates search data today with the movie box office release this Saturday. And we're right. like, can you do that again? We did it again. We go, Whoa, wait a minute. The team realized, what if we went to Disney and said, why don't you just work with Yahoo to see how well the TV networks or the newspapers are doing, and then as we get to know each other and the Internet grows up, you can also buy some of our services. And by putting on that different hat, it changed the game for us, and we got into that studio, we became a partner to them. And it caused us to have to rethink what it was we could do for them and actually completely approach the market different, where we were kind of an an, an appendage, if you will, to our biggest competitors we were trying to disrupt. Sure. No, I I think that's awesome. And I I love that kind of um, outside of the box kind of thinking when it comes to that kind of stuff. Because, you know, data doesn't lie, right? And if you could prove to them that you're, you know, what you're trying to do for them is is useful and kind of saving them money, like it's it's almost a no-brainer for them to... To, to not, or to go with you, right? Especially today. Sure. With the markets going south and a lot of talk about the tech bubble bursting. I mean, I'm telling you, if you are selling to people in tech or energy or marketing solutions, a lot of them are, are a little uncertain right now about the future. Sure. And if you try to go to them and sell what you've been selling for the last five years and that business opportunity, they may want to wait till the clouds part. But if you go to them today and you say, just like we do with Disney, we are selling you cost savings, just like we told them you know, right after the dot-com crash, 2001, 2002, you're going to make progress as your competitors sit on the sideline and wait for the storm clouds to blow over. Sure. No, that makes a lot of sense. This is super important these days. You know, focus on building teams, focus on selling savings. That's my big strategy for selling during tough market conditions. Sure. No, that makes sense. So do you have any other kind of tips um, for kind of selling when the markets are a little bit uncertain? Yeah, I also think that you have to challenge your customers to seize the opportunity because every recession is an equal opportunity nightmare. And there's really good research. Um, If you guys Google the phrase uh, New Yorker and hanging tough, just put those four words in Google, you'll read an article that was written right after the the Great Recession of 08. What the article does is it studies every recession since 1901, and it proves one company at a time, one industry at a time, that those that get back to business during the recession before the rest of their competitors mop up the market. Interesting. So later when it gets good, they win. So that's something I've learned to challenge my customers to do is, okay, stop letting uncertainty run your business. Take an opportunity here. We're going to focus on saving on the one side, but we're also going to focus on you taking advantage of your competitor's fear. And I always point back 
to when Apple launched the iPod in late 2001. Okay, this was just a few months after 9-11. Everybody was canceling product launches. But Steve Jobs knew that his only chance to beat the Walkman, the Mm -hmm. Sony Walkman. I remember those. Was to, to take advantage of Sony's fear, which they had at the time. Sure. And launch that product during the middle of a recession, the iPod, so he could get iTunes installed like the Trojan horse. And guess what? In 2009, they did it again when they released the iPad. So choose your timing. And as a salesperson, don't be afraid to challenge your customer to hang tough. So those are the three things. Build teams to be more creative, sell savings, and when all else fails, challenge your customer to pull out of the recession before their competitors. Sure. No, that makes a lot of sense. And it's interesting that you brought up the iPad because I remember like creative – Oh, I can't even remember, but they weren't even, Apple was not the first person to do the like, th- like oh, yeah. portable MP3 player. It's just, they were the first person to mass market and everybody had it. And and a lot of people would right. argue that's what saved Apple. Yeah. Guess what? You just said it. Mass market. Apple spent a boatload of advertising dollars in 2002. The analysts were like, what the what? But they knew that they had a limited window before Sony would spring back into action, which was in 2004, and that no one can remember what Sony's product was. Yeah, exactly. Do we remember what it was? What was it called? The smart what? I don't know. The point was they were late. Yeah, exactly. They were really late. And they were late because they were afraid. And they were afraid because they were watching the news too much and doing business too little. So if you're listening here, Use this example the next time one of your customers is like, we're going to wait until this recession is over and ask them, what if your competitor was launching a highly disruptive product right now knowing that you were afraid? What are you going to do two years from now And everybody says iPod is how you listen to music? No. Yeah, that's that's really good advice. So I'm kind of curious, Tim. You, you kind of mentioned it quick about deeper media, but I'm, I'm kind of curious to know what deeper media is and kind of why you started it. Uh, Deeper Media is a research and consulting firm. What we do is help our customers learn um, how to sell better, how to lead talent to be more engaged, and we do it all with research. So, you know, sometimes a consultant just has a bunch of, quote, smart people. They have college degrees or they worked at big companies and they kind of go around giving their opinion for money. Um, At Deeper Media, we build things. Okay. So we build data sets to help customers make really smart decisions about how they lead their people or run their sales process. So fundamentally, we do everything based on research. So I come to you with kind of a problem and then you guys kind mm-hmm. of do the research or, or how does that go about? Yeah. We're always doing research like deal storming was based on a boatload of research that helped us to understand the new sales process. And we apply that research to specific situations. And then in some cases, uh, even for my keynote talks, We'll do internal research. We'll conduct surveys inside your company, and sometimes we'll audit documents um, to take a look at the language that's used, the sentiment that's, that's going throughout your company, and the health of your culture. So it really varies, but I'm always conducting research to understand the next big thing. Okay, interesting. And so what, what, I guess what kind of – how do you decide which research to do? It's, I'm as eclectic as Prince. When it comes to things, I mean, I just kind of go where the organization's passion is, right? So I don't always try to peg to the biggest problems in the world. I kind of peg where I know we've got enough passion so that we can do really good work for a really long time because research doesn't happen overnight. Research takes time. Field storming took three years to write. And I'm talking the last year was 
12 hours a day, seven days a week, tons of people. It was hard. A lot of people give up when you get to the end of a good research project. So pick the ones you're passionate about where you just want to find the truth and you really you really care about people's problems, right? So I, I really do care about the, the entrepreneur's problem in raising around or selling that first big deal. I care. I, I've lost startups because I couldn't do that. I really care about B2B sales managers and salespeople. They're just stuck in these big deal challenges. They don't have any way out of it and they lose. I really want to help them win. And it's that passion and the passion that my team has that allows us to finish these projects and even keep researching them. We're doing research right now. so. Okay. No, that makes a lot of sense. So I'm curious, though, when you go into a company and they have a problem, you must have a bunch of people internally come over to you and say, can you really, like, arm me in in this direction or that direction um how do you kind of handle or decide which problems really need to be solved which we, we try to mostly i like to work with deals that are stuck in the pipeline whatever okay. that is so okay. i like to look i like to look at things at the deal level and i like to take a look at the ones that really qualify right i really think that winning could change the game and i think there's a degree of difficulty there that if we solve it it's going to change their culture because it's going to look like mission impossible. Sure. Um, so I always look for those because I don't like to, to, to go to work for a company long-term where I'm, I'm like an extension of their sales force. I love to go in and help them win once or twice and then have that win be so transformative, so unexpected, so inspiring that they come back to me two years later and say, look at all the ways we've innovated your ideas. That. That's like, I feel like Miyagi in Karate Kid when that happens, because that's how I think about mentorship. That's how I think about consulting work in general. That's how I think about writing books. It's really about enabling people to control their own destiny and find their success. Sure. No, that makes a lot of sense. So one other thing that I I think is is worth kind of talking about um, is you mentioned in the book about kind of you had a big client and then you lost them. Um, kind of tips about how to get them back. I think that you've got to be very honest with yourself and very transparent across an organization to understand exactly why you really lost it. You okay. know, a lot of times we think we lost an account due to what happened the last time we talked to the client, but we don't know everything. The, the, the better that you do at identifying the root cause of the breakup, the more obvious the solution will be to you. So that that's important because that's where collaboration comes in. So you have to bring people in and have a debate about assumptions because what I found in my experience is that over half the time, you didn't know the real reason you lost the account, but if you'll spend more time finding the root cause instead of trying to apologize or make up for the wrong root cause, you'll get progress quicker. Um, it reminds me of an old saying uh, that John Dewey wrote where he said, um, a problem well identified is a problem half solved. So, so when you have a deal in danger or an accounting crisis, spend as much time debating why it's in crisis as you are figuring out what the next steps are. And that's going to change your process completely. Sure. Would you potentially reach out to maybe somebody you still have a good kind of relationship inside the company to try to help you you solve that or, or not really? Absolutely. Absolutely. And when you do, you got to show empathy, right? So you got to open the door. You got to say, you know, we really want to maintain this relationship. We're trying to explore the root cause of what went wrong. We're really open to any feedback you can give me. And then listen 
and remember that empathy is about trying to understand their perspective. And the rule of listening in this situation is feelings are facts. Okay, interesting. So when they say, when you did this, you really pissed us off, the answer is not, you shouldn't feel this way, we did it for your own good. When they say, when this changed in our market, we got very uncertain, so we cut lines of budget like yours, you don't say, well, the market's going to get better. Didn't you see the announcement this morning? All you're doing is pushing back on their feelings. When you go to people inside that account and you're really trying to find the root cause of the problem, the only answer when they express negative feelings is, I'm sorry you feel that way, tell me more, and then to echo back to them what you think you heard them say about their perspective or their feeling, and leave it there and go do your research. Because I found that if you'll open yourself up to other people's perspectives without judgment and don't try to fix things on the spot, they'll tell you off the script stuff and you'll find the real cause. And when you find the real cause of the problem, you're going to get back on track. Sure. No, that makes a lot of sense. And even if you don't kind of win them back, it's also like a good thing to know about for future deals. It it is. You know, it gives you really good information. It's the hardest call you'll ever make. It'll make you a better leader for future things that you do in your life. I mean, you're you're becoming accountable when you reach out and say, I recognize something bad's happened. I want to maintain this moving forward. I am open to anything you want to tell me, and I'm going to listen. That's huge. And it's the hardest thing you'll just, just the hardest thing you'll ever do. And I also think, Kevin, it'll make a big impression on that client because, remember, people move around in jobs. So that totally. person at the one company that fired you may be a buyer three years from now at another company that hires you because he goes, man, I remember Kevin. He was a champion. You know, he, he had the guts to come back to us when we fired his company and figure out what really happened. He couldn't fix it for reasons beyond his control, but he was the one guy that had, you know, the pair yeah. to call him. No, that makes a lot of sense. I, I think it's interesting, like as my career kind of, and I've been in the industry for a long period of time now, as it kind of, you know, gets older and I've worked at a number of jobs and people have moved around, it's surprising how many people that I've worked with in the past, you know, you keep in touch with, or maybe you mm-hmm. don't keep in touch with, but then one day they're like, hey, I got this thing. Do you want to meet for coffee or, right. or whatnot? And it's surprising how many times that does happen. And I know everybody says, like, it's don't burn world. bridges. But, yeah, like, it's crazy how important that is. And I've even worked at companies where somebody moves to another company and then that new company that they're working at recommends your product or service to their new boss and they become a client. So now, like, it's just – it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I, I love the idea of kind of keeping those relationships. And, and I still meet up with people that I've worked with, you know, even a decade ago for coffee yeah. or beer or, or even dinner just sporadically here and there just to keep in touch because who knows where things will go, right, for either one of us. That's right. And, and, and when you reconnect with someone, you know, this is a trusted source of new information because they've gone on and done, done new things. And they're going to share that with you. And there's nothing that will make you smarter than constantly reconnecting with people from your past. So make sure. that a habit. Make that like an hour every Friday. I know I do. Okay, interesting. No, it's that's, yeah. that's really good advice. But, uh, Tim, we're kind of running out of time here. So maybe let's kind of close the show with promoting – where people can actually um, buy the book, Deal Storming, the Secret Weapon That Can Solve Your Toughest Sales Challenges, and then any other kind of social media links um, you want to share about the book, the company, yourself personally? 
Absolutely. So you could, of course, go to Amazon and just put in deal storming and you'll get you know, a link to buy the book. Yep. You can also go to timsanders.com and just click on the deal storming cover and you'll see a page where you could download the free chapter. I'm offering a whole lot of bonuses like a two-hour video training program, et cetera, when you buy the book. Um, so go to timsanders.com for more there. Um, on social media everywhere, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, I am at Sanders says, you know, like Simon says, I am at Sanders says. Okay, awesome. Tim, well, this has been awesome. Thanks again for doing it. I'm excited to kind of keep in touch with you. And I know you and I have a couple other things planned for March and, and whatnot. So I'm excited to kind of get this show up and live and keep in touch with you over 2016 and uh, have you on the TV program. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to Kevin. This has been a great conversation. All right, Tim. Well, thanks again. We'll talk soon and uh, have a good rest of your day. Thank you. Bye, Ned. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the show. The music for the show is done by Electric Mantra. You can check them out at electricmantra.com. Until next time, keep building the future.